All right, so yeah, this is the first week of a new BFL class um, that Andy Wynn has gathered. He's gotten a number of um, teachers together and I'm leading off. Um, and so if you look at the outline there on, uh, for the, the plan course, uh, Finding Comfort in Chaos is the, uh, the name of this. Uh, so today, I'm my topic, my assigned topic is Finding Comfort in God Himself. Uh, finding comfort in God himself. So we're going to do that today. And then next week, Kevin Shaw will teach finding comfort in God's word. And then uh, December 15th, finding comfort in your identity in Christ. Richard Mounts will be doing that one. And then finding comfort in the incarnation. Um, that's Andy Wynn. So that'll be right before Christmas. We'll have no BFL on the 29th. And then two more after the new year, uh, finding comfort in the church and then finding comfort in prayer. So that's where we're heading. But I have a fantastic assignment today, and that is finding comfort in God himself. And so when you think about that word, and we're going to zero in on it, um, you know, throughout this, the word comfort, what does that mean to you? We got small enough group. You don't have to be afraid like in that other room, like a couple weeks ago, there was like 500 people in there. So I thought that was so funny. Who did, um, who did Ron make read scripture? Somebody st had to stand up in the Ira, Ira Curl. And he, he was so funny. He was like, this is what you get for walking in late. I'll, that was, I think, one of the funniest things. You know how when things are, are, you know, you're not supposed to laugh, things are 10 times funnier? So I was sitting there in the back row with Richard Mounts, and I just thought it was so funny. But I thought Ira soldiered through pretty well. He did all right. So that, and he had to stand. So if I have any of you guys read, I'm not going to have you stand up. So. But the word comfort, what does that mean to you? Um, so we are going to talk about that across the number of weeks. This is a very small number of chairs. This is an epically small number of chairs. I don't know what everyone was thinking. We're going to be full, I think. Yeah, there's all those bent woods in there. Those things have been here since the church was founded, I think, actually. It may be. I don't know. I don't think those things burn. I think those things, they can survive anything. <laughs> have you ever sat in them? Yes. Connie, have you sat in them many times, right? Good. Yeah. I actually, I'm not joking. I wouldn't mind some of you getting up and just starting to put some out. Yeah, and I'm serious. These are going to fill in within three minutes. Um, so we need, we need more chairs. So let's drag them out and use them one more time. Are there some in there? All right. Go ahead, please. All right. I love it. That is, I think, for me, the word, uh, it's a feeling of peace, uh, security, uh, no fear for the future. You know, we're talking about the word comfort. Um, uh, now, the word chaos is an interesting word, too. I don't necessarily know where that idea, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, we may not need all those. We may need more. But I'll tell you what, Jay, let's hold them in reserve, all right? <laughs> Just hold. That one looks pretty comfortable, kind of. It's funny to be talking about comfort and those, those bent wood chairs do not minister comfort to me. I don't know how you guys feel, but when I'm sitting in them, I'm not thinking comfort. But anyway, they do keep us awake, though. Um, the word chaos is interesting because I, I thought um, some time ago I, I came across uh, Ephesians 1.10 in which uh, the Lord gives us through the Apostle Paul a vision or a sense of what the big picture is. What is he doing? And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. 
So you think about the movement of everything moving away from the center. So the image that has been in my mind since this insight came to me is of a fragmentation grenade where sin has blown things apart that should be together, primarily God and man. We should be together in a relationship with him, but that's been blown apart. And then that horizontal, the relationship between Adam and Eve blown apart, and all other human relationships fractured by sin. So that's, when I think of chaos, I think of that, uh, a sinful disordering of things that should have been together. And I think we, we feel that. So that's just going to be my working definition of this concept of, of finding comfort in chaos. So one of the most comforting things we could ever have is the realization that the chaos we experience is a temporary phenomenon. There is no chaos in the new heaven, new earth. Things will be in perfect order. Things will be brought together in harmony with one another and most of all, best of all, with God. And we will be made to understand the mystery of the Trinity, the oneness of the three persons. The oneness is the mystery for me. I can't quite understand how three are truly perfectly one. But we are going to experience that forever in heaven, unity with God and with each other. So that's not even in the handout, but um, I think it's helpful. So the concept that I have that I'm working with today, um, the thing that's assigned to me is finding comfort in God himself. And so the idea here is that we need to be able to translate our theology and make it work for us in whatever we're going through. It's not, it's not enough to just know a bunch of theology, to know a bunch, a bunch of, uh, of good exegesis and passages. We have to, have to see the Holy Spirit put God's word to work in our circumstances or it doesn't do us any good. So what I wrote here is our theology must affect our mindset, our emotions, and our actions. This is especially true in times of trial and suffering. So we have got to find how we can take what we know about God theologically and, and put it to work in our own hearts, our own minds, our emotions, and then obviously then in our actions. Uh, that's what we're talking about today. So we can't just simply <coughs> excuse me, absorb theological information <clears throat> excuse me, without allowing it to transform who we are. That's true in general. We're, you know, in the first quarter of 2020, we're going to go into the book of James. And I think James is an interesting book, um, and it it's, uh, covers so many different topics, and it's hard perhaps to find a unifying theme, but I think one of the, one of the main unifying themes is that, that the Word of God has to produce good works in our lives or our faith isn't valid. We don't have a real faith. Faith without works is dead. And part of that in chapter 1 in James 1 is we can't be ineffective hearers only of the Word and so deceive ourselves. We have to actually do what it says. We have to take uh, what we learn about God and put it into practice. So it's easy for us to seek comfort as worldly people do from creature comforts, all right? Comfort food. I'm not going to ask if any of you indulged in any comfort food over the last few days. Um, but, you know, that, that idea of, of eating to bring comfort to your life in a way that is beyond just, obviously, nutrition and beyond, um, you know, even pleasure, but you're finding in an idolatrous way comfort in food. But people find that in a lot of things, material possessions, uh, circumstances that bring pleasure to our five senses. Uh, so it's easy to do that. Um, and then to fail to apply to our, our, our years of Bible intake to our souls. We have been walking with the Lord for a long time. We've accumulated a lot of biblical information. Our church is a very well-taught church. We have a lot of great teachers here. And so we are feeding on God's Word. The answer is not let's have less feeding on God's Word. That's not, never the answer. The answer is let's have more application of it. 
Let's be certain that we're putting into practice the things that we learn. Uh, we have to learn to translate our doctrinal knowledge into the right heart state and righteous actions that each circumstance in life calls for. So when I mean heart state, especially in trials and, and suffering, what does that mean to you? The right heart state. And why is that especially important in times of trial? Okay, I love it. We can't control our circumstances, but what we can do through the power of the Holy Spirit is control our reaction to it. I mean, we cannot orchestrate. We can't, we can't control our environment. I know we, we think, you know, with HVAC, electronic controls and all that, we can have a, a controlled environment. Well, we control a lot more than people did a thousand years ago, but we really can't control the things that really matter, the things that matter the most, the life and death of loved ones and the other circumstances. We just don't have control over that. What we're called on as Christians is to control how we respond. And uh, do we respond in faith? Do we respond trusting God? Do we speak words of, uh, you know, confession of faith in the middle of that? Or do we uh, start talking like unbelievers, to acting like unbelievers? J.I. Packer in his classic Introduction to Theology, Knowing God, some of you have seen that and read it. It's a book that's ministered to me. Um, had an early chapter entitled, The People Who Know Their God. It's a really good chapter. Uh, it's based on a statement in the book of Daniel speaking of the future of the world during a time of crisis unlike the world had ever seen. It's a time when the abomination of desolation is erected, the uh, Antichrist is ruling, and people have to run for their lives. Here's the verse. I'm going to read that for us. Daniel 11:32. So that's the basis of J.I. Packer's meditation in that chapter. And uh, I could do some exegesis now in Daniel 11. It's just one of, the, one of the most remarkable chapters, but I won't. I'm just going to zero in on the phrase as Packer does. The people who know their God. Uh, they shall stand firm and take action. So um, he used that phrase to establish the power of a deep personal knowledge of God on the lives of those who put that knowledge to proper use. These are his four headings. The people who know their God have great energy for God. Great energy for God. Secondly, the people who know their God have great thoughts of God. The people who know their God show great boldness for God. And the people who know uh, their God have great contentment in God. So those are the things he pulls out from that as he meditates as a theologian on those things. Great energy, great thoughts, great boldness, and great contentment in God. And so I think that's helpful. All of those things are beneficial in our lives. Uh, great energy for God. We don't, we don't flag or fail easily, give up quickly. But there's, there's this really limitless source of, of soul energy that translates to bodily energy, but just you, you don't give up, you don't quit, but you have that perseverance. Um, and then great thoughts of God. Um, the people who know their God, the more you, you know God, and that's what theology is. It's the, 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 the LOG, like biology is the science of life. You know, theology be the science or the study of God. God wants us to study him. I actually think, as I write this book on heaven, that that's where we're going to spend eternity, studying God. I mean, once you accept the premise that I give in my book, that we will never be omniscient, what that means is there's always more, more to learn. And so what that means is we'll study God forever. And you're like, well, are we going to run out of new ideas and thoughts? Never. We will never run out of new thoughts about God. There's always more to learn. Um, always, I was, I was blowing my leaves on Friday, along with five other of my neighbors. That was the leaf blowing day. Perfect weather for it. Then the rain came the next day, and it was like I had done nothing. I mean, but I'm philosophical about it. The leaves have to move, and I don't care when they move, so it doesn't matter. 
but it would have been nice for a couple of days to have a nice clean looking lawn. But I was listening to Christian music and Steve Green's song, God and God Alone. I was listening to that. And the Lord brought in this meditation from uh, uh, Revelation chapter 5, which is so powerful. And there in Revelation 5, a search is made for someone worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, and no one's found in heaven or earth or under the earth. And what that means is all the greatest men and women of history, all the heroes, are insufficient for that role. Jesus is greater than all of them. So I believe in a rhythm in heaven of seeing great men and women and seeing their greatness, and then they themselves and all of us casting their crown before Christ, and that Christ is greater, Christ is greater, Christ is greater. And I, I think that's, and, and not in any reluctant way, they're all delighted to say that Christ is greater, and they could have done nothing without him anyway. And so I thought that was, that was pretty powerful. So having great thoughts of God. God is a limitless being. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but just uh, expansive thoughts of God. People who know their God show great boldness for God. God calls on us to do courageous things, evangelism, missions, suffering well, uh, being willing to confront the, the chaos of our culture. Every culture has sinful chaos. Ours has a certain flavor of it, but there's all over the world, there's brokenness, and it takes courage, it takes boldness to confront it. And then the people who know uh, God have great contentment in God, which is a combination, I think, of peace and joy, very stable, to be content in any and every situation. All of that flows from knowing God. And so that's what my contribution to this course is today, uh, that knowing God is a source of contentment in the midst of chaos. We're going to derive from our theology contentment. All right, so we're going we're gonna to take the rich theological knowledge we've been blessed with and translate it to proper heart states in any and every situation, then to proper actions that will glorify God. This is especially important when we find ourselves immersed in chaos, the disorder of this present evil age. So we're going to find comfort in God, and God himself. So is that enough? Is God enough? Oh, he's enough. He is an infinite topic for your study in heaven, and it will be inexhaustible. You are going to learn God. You're learning him now. But you're, by the time you die, if you live an incredibly faithful, rich, full life, you will not have learned one one millionth of the percent of what you could learn. It's an infinite topic. But the more that we can take what we've learned from Scripture and apply it in our suffering, apply it in our circumstance, that's better. So I love this, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And these are some of the greatest words I've ever read about theology. They're, they're written by some 17th century English Puritans who assembled to make this statement of faith, and they just do a great job of theologizing. All right, so listen to this. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself self-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. 
He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. By the way, it's one of the most humbling statements you could ever read, that God can do what he wants with you. Isn't that powerful when you think about that? And the more you meditate, it's like God can do to me, for me, with me, whatever he wants. It's powerful. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing to him is contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. It's very humbling for us to read that, isn't it? Now, as you look at those words, there's so much there. I could say what comes into your mind, but I don't know how to, how to couch a good, a good question other than that. As you read this, this is so rich in theology, what kinds of thoughts come in your mind? Yeah, I, I think, as I, I've said, I don't know how to, I don't want to praise it too highly because it's not scripture, but it's so clearly based on scripture. So many scriptural phrases in it. But I don't think I've read anything that's not in scripture that's better than this. I mean, it's just so powerful. It is humbling. What else? Do you see any phrases in there that would be con- con- particularly comforting, convicting, strengthening to you as you read it? That's, that's so true. The immutability of God. I like what it says that God doesn't get any glory from any of his creatures. You know, you look at Revelation, so much of the glory language is um, power and wealth and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and praise be to our God. Well, like strength, you're going to give strength to God? (laughs) What does that mean? What does it mean for you to give glory to God? It's like you giving light to the sun. You don't have anything. It's like you feel like you have nothing to offer. And, but the fact is, it's like that phrase, and it's right in this, it's from Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. Whatever glory you have to offer, he gave it to you. And without getting super geeky, in the Venn diagram of glory, your little circle is completely inside his. It's already his anyway. You can't give him any glory that wasn't his already. And the more you realize that, the better it is for you. But still, you do have some glory that appertains to you, and you can offer it to God. That's why the language is in the Bible. To him be glory forever and ever. But it's still an interesting thought. It's like you have your little, your little bucket of glory and you're going to pour it on the surface of the sun. But there it is. I mean, but that's what worship is. Any other phrases from this before we continue? Out? Yeah. Justice, okay. How he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, but also Yeah, I've always I struggled a little bit where it says uh, who will by no means clear the guilty and that here we are the guilty who have been cleared. So I think what that phrase means is by no other means than his own self-determined means. By no other means than the atoning work of Christ. But by that means he will clear the guilty. But what that means is on judgment day when there are people who did not take advantage of the means of grace, did not take advantage of the gospel, there is no other answer for them on that day. And he's not going to clear them at that point. He's not going to get weak or say, well, you know, there's another way other than believing in my son. There is no other way. And so that's powerful. Let's keep going. This morning we're going to zero in on a text, um, which is a beautiful chapter in comfort and suffering. 
And one of the main ideas Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 1 is the reason God brings afflictions into our lives, one of the reasons, is so that he can then comfort us. And in comforting us, he will give us a certain combination of graces and comforts that were helpful to us. And we can take that package of graces and use them to comfort a brother or sister in the same kind of way. That's what Paul says. Those are my own words. But the idea is God brings you into suffering, brings you out of it, and comforts you in that, and then you learn, and then you say, let me tell you what God did for me and how God comforted me. Paul effectively says that. Can someone read this for us? 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. There is so much in there, isn't there? I mean, look at the, the statement he makes here. If Verse 6, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. In other words, whatever happens to me, it's for you. There's such a generosity of spirit here, sharing whatever God brings in my life. It's, it's for other people. Now, he's not discluding himself. He, he's included. He's a believer in Christ. He's a human. He needs to be comforted and all that. But he's not, he's, he doesn't stop there. So the resources that come into our lives are meant not for us alone, but for others. That's the basic concept here. And Paul's saying, all of the afflictions I'm going through, I would not be going through them if I were not called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, if I were not called on to this, this itinerant ministry of sharing the gospel with those who have never heard of Christ, I wouldn't be going through this. The reason I'm going through these sufferings is for your salvation. And he's got that sense, and it's really pretty rich. But he also includes them. Now, as you help me in your prayers, you're going to buy stock in that company, so to speak. You're going to get involved, and you're going to be able to give thanks when God delivers us. So there's a sense of the beautiful unity of the body of Christ. It is a marvelous thing, isn't it? We go through afflictions and sufferings that are common to the world. People go through the kind of illnesses and afflictions and sorrows that are common to all people. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. There are some afflictions and sufferings that are unique to Christians. But then there are some that are just common to the world, and we are able to go through it with each other. And that's something non-Christians don't have. Most of my family are not Christians. And as they've gone through various sorrows and various, they don't have any local church friends. They don't have, I mean, I remember I went to my nephew's wedding within the last year. He married an Indian woman. It was very Indian, kind of, it felt like a Hare Krishna thing. It was sad. It made me sad. Uh, but I was there to support, you know, my family. But I was surprised that my sibling, you know, my, didn't have guests. They just didn't have friends. And, you know, I, I just thought, how blessed are we, all of us, to be involved in a healthy local church and have people who go through our joys and sorrows with us. That's a blessing. All right. So the source of comfort is God. Uh, the ultimate source of comfort, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and look at that, the God of all comfort. The of there means he's a source of it. All comfort comes from God. He's the one that gives it. All right, so praise while suffering is a strange reaction for normal people. This is not normal, guys. <laughs> you go through, it's like, praise God, I'm going through an intense pain in my body right now. I'm like really having a lot of, and I'm just so thankful to God. That is not normal. And if you know that it's not normal, like Peter walking on the water, just know that it's not normal, that you are being sustained in a supernatural reaction. Just know that. And so, but, but God wants to sustain you in that. I am able 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in me to give thanks in all circumstances and praise God in the midst of my affliction. I can do it, but it is not normal. There is a gravitational pull that's going to cause like Peter to sink in the waves. If you don't have that constant mindset and trusting, you're going to sink and start complaining. It's just the most normal thing to do. All right, regenerate people then learn to look upward and praise God no matter what the circumstances. Think about Job. All right, none of us will ever go through the kind of day that Job went through when he lost all of his children. I mean, it's, it's hard to even fathom how much affliction could come to one man on one day. Remember how the rhythm was, while he was still speaking, the next messenger came. You've lost all your donkeys, you've lost all your camels, you've lost all this, you've lost all your sheep, you've lost all your children. It's just unbelievable. It's overwhelming. And so it says that this Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, Job is a long book. And one of the things about Job being such a long book is the trial goes on much longer than you want it to. It goes on much longer than you think it should have. All right, God, I want you to know, Whatever lesson you want to teach me, I got it. Yeah, and then weeks, months, years later, you're still going through it. So the book is like that. It just goes on and on. So many discussions, so many debates. But think about how it ends, all right, where God himself shows up and really puts Job in his place, you know. It's just an interesting approach to therapy. Where were you when I made the universe? Who are you to question me, you know? You know, tell me since you know how to make an ostrich. Go ahead and make one. Um, you know, I mean, just unbelievable. You think about all that. What was the net effect on Job's heart? When all that talking to by God was done, what did Job feel? Better or worse? Well, maybe, but I'm saying he felt better. He felt infinitely better um, because of the closeness that he had with God. That's the point of this whole Bible study today. God is enough. He didn't have any of his children back. He'd never get them back. He had other children. Um, he would get a lot of, you know, his wealth back and even more. But that, none of that mattered. I mean, what mattered was God talked to him. And he repented in sackcloth. He, he felt better about him. Uh, I mean, uh, better about God, not better about himself. He had underestimated his own sinfulness, right? I mean, when you say, let God come and I'll ask him some questions and he can answer me. It's like, eh, no. <laughs> And so you have that sense of the infinite majesty of God. So there's that sense of God is sufficient. All right, Paul also said he learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, verse 12. And the answer is praising God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God is enough. And uh, one aspect of that secret is praising God, Acts 16. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So that is supernatural. That is not a normal reaction to being stripped and flogged publicly. But for Paul and Silas, there was such a joy in God. And Jesus himself said, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted because great is your reward in heaven. They had met the condition. They'd been beat, beaten for Christ. And they just rejoiced because they had great reward in heaven. And so they were just singing and praising God. 
So Paul uh, focuses totally on God for comfort, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to him, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's heart is warmed to bless God. His heart is full of worship to God because of the taste of sweet mercy that he had received and experienced. Richard Sibbs, another one of those Puritans, 17th century Puritans, said this, It is the disposition of God's children after they have tasted the sweet mercy and comfort and love of God to break forth into the praising of God and to thanksgiving. It is as natural for the new creature to do so as for the birds to sing in the spring. When the sun has warmed the poor creature, it shows its thankfulness by singing. And that little blood and spirits it has, been, it has being warmed after winter, it is natural for those little creatures to do so. It is as natural for the new creature when it feels the sun of righteousness warming the soul, when it tastes the mercy of God in Christ, to show itself forth in thankfulness and praise. And it can no more be kept from it than fire can be kept from burning or water from cooling. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? If you are a new creation in Christ, it is now natural for you to praise God. What that means is you should say, if I am in the midst of a circumstance and I'm not praising God, something is broken. There's some, something defective. And it is my birthright, really my inheritance, like the Holy Spirit given as a down payment of our inheritance, to praise God. So we shouldn't stay outside shivering in the cold at that moment. Say, no, I can, I can, by God's grace, I can be genuinely thanking God right now. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to accept this lower status of my emotions and my reactions. I'm going to bang on the door. I'm going to knock until he opens it. And I'm going to get to the place where I'm genuinely thanking God. I think we, if, we, if we don't know that, what Sibs is saying here, we'll say, well, this is normal, right? I mean, I'm suffering. Of course I feel miserable. Like, well, if you're a new creation, you can be like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. You can. Your back still hurts. You're still bleeding. You haven't had anything to eat. None of that's changed. But you're still filled with joy. All right, so he speaks of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we zero in on the Godhead himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is eternally triune. He never changes. God does not need our praises. Look back at the Westminster Confession. He doesn't stand in need of the creature. It's not like, you know, we're supplying the king's table. You know what I'm saying? Like we are the king's, um, you know, shepherd and we have to give a certain quota of sheep or he won't have anything to eat. God doesn't need anything from us at all. He doesn't stand in need. He doesn't lack anything. He is blessed whether we bless him or not. He is praised whether we praise him or not. He has some really good praise going on up there. hundred million angels. They are awesome. They do the job. So even if he wanted creatures to praise him, he's got them. He's got them. So he doesn't need us to praise him. There's no neediness in him. God created the universe. He existed at that point in Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and will forever. There was no lack of love or relationship or even praise going from one uh, person of the Trinity to the other. God is eternally blessed in and of himself. So do not ever imagine God created the universe out of neediness. So lonely. Poor God. And now he needs creatures to come around him because he was lonely. That is not true. There was a perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it was out of fullness, not out of emptiness, that he created. Well, we need to praise him. And it is good uh, at, the, at the beginning of our comforts to focus totally on God. God is forever blessed, the only source of our comfort. It says in 1 Timothy 1.11, it speaks, it's just a fragment here, but I want to pull it out. Uh, the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. 
the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It's an interesting phrase. He is the blessed God. So the word blessed, kind of like the word shalom, it means this full, rich, complete wholeness. That's the blessed God. Uh, John Piper, one of his books, uh, God is the Gospel, and it's a common theme for him. Blessed could simply be richly happy. God's a richly happy being. You know, I love that. He's never disgruntled or out of sorts. God having a bad day. Is there anything, God, that I can do to cheer you up today? You seem to be having a bad day. He never has a bad day. He's always the blessed God. And the gospel is good news. The good news that God is a blessed God, and he's inviting you into his blessedness. That's what's going on. It's beautiful. All right, so the ultimate comfort from God uh, is the sending of his Son into the world. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should therefore fill our minds with thoughts of God's eternal nature, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the immutability of God, like Craig said, eternally worthy of our greatest praise and worship. One thing I do when I'm suffering, when I'm going through trial, is to say to myself, God is as worthy of praise now as the last time I was happy with the things he was doing in my life. He, he never changes, so he's worthy of praise now as he was then. That's very convicting for me. It's like, I don't need to have the trappings. That was the whole point, wasn't it, with Satan? That was the charge against Job. You basically bought him off. You put a hedge around him, blessed everything he has, you bought him off. As long as things are going well, he'll praise you. But if you take away those things, he'll curse you to your That's what Satan says. That's, I think, one of the main themes to me of the book of Hosea. We are not to act like prostitutes where we have to have our affections purchased. I don't want to be like that. I want to be genuinely from my heart where God doesn't have to buy my time. Do you know what I'm saying? It's pretty bad between Hosea and Gomer. You know, it's a, it's a scandalous relationship, but God wants that to put on display how Israel was being, how, how defective. I don't want to be like that. I want to be able to praise God even when things aren't going well for me. When things are hurting, I want to be able to say, you don't have to buy my affections. So we should meditate. And, and even if we could say, not that he has bought them, but there's that redemptive theme. He bought us with a price. The price has been paid. You can't ask for more than has been paid for you already. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. The only begotten son dead on the cross for me. No, no, no. That's it. That's an infinite gift. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give him, give us all things? Just there's that, that scale. His only begotten Son outweighs all things. That's the logic of the verse, right? So the infinite majesty, the weightiness of Christ given for you, for your salvation, everything else is lesser than that. He didn't spare his own Son. So we should meditate on the priceless gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to bless God for Christ, our mediator, our great high priest, our atonement, our Lord. We should realize that the foundation of all our comforts from God is his far greater gift of Christ, as I just said, Romans 8.32. We should uh, rejoice that God has adopted us to be his own children. So not only is he the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he is by adoption our Father as well. He is your Father. He will not do you harm. Isn't that the logic in Matthew 6, where he says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You're worth more than many sparrows. You have a Father who loves you and is providing for you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, then Paul also calls him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort in verse 3. 
Uh, NIV has compassion, but it goes deeper than that, just that he is fully, richly comforting us. Mercy is God's grace to uh, persons in misery. I think that's a good definition. I don't think it's technical. I couldn't necessarily prove it scripturally, but it seems to work. Mercy is the alleviation of suffering. Grace seems to go right after our sin. So grace covers our sin. Mercy alleviates our suffering. If you don't think that those are precisely technical, that's fine. Grace and mercy so frequently go together, almost seem interchangeable. Whether you think grace does this and mercy does that or the other way around doesn't matter, God alleviates suffering and covers our sin, or you want to put it the other way around, covers our sin and alleviates suffering. I think the, the reason that I, I tend to think of human misery is when blind, the blind beggars are calling out to Jesus, they're calling for mercy. You know, frequently that's the calling of beggars, you know, have mercy on me, that kind of thing. All right, so uh, Sib says, always where misery is, either there is present or possible mercy. Isn't that great? So wherever there is misery, there, there is the possibility of mercy. I love that. Present mercy or possible mercy. So what do you think about that phrase? That's interesting. Possible mercy. What does that mean to you? There is possible mercy. Let's stick with my temporary definition here of alleviation of suffering. Go ahead. But that doesn't mean that there's not possible alleviation. If there were not possible, God would say, there's nothing I can do. Sometimes that happens too. There are blessings that God withholds from his children until they ask him for it. And it's happened again and again in 20th century of church history. People will say, it wasn't until we prayed that X happened. And I think God even wants us to know that, to learn that lesson. It's like we were muddling along as a church or as a family or as an individual in this, and God just kept pressing on me to pray, and we just didn't pray. We were prayerless about it. We really didn't spend time praying. And then when we prayed, God answered. Sometimes he does things without prayer. But, you know, I think knowing that possible mercy, if mercy is always possible, if what Craig says is true, and we, we know it's true, that sometimes God chooses not to, at least it's possible, what that means is the suffering's intentional. And even that's comforting, isn't it? God's intending for you to have this level of pain in your life. He wants you to hurt heard in this way. We're not prosperity gospel people here. We actually believe God uses pain and suffering to produce good things in our lives. Paul's going to testify to it in the text here. By the way, I have the joy of baptizing my daughter today. I'm so excited about that. But we're meeting my wife and my daughter in my office at quarter past. So the, the BFL has to let, let us out, you know, at a certain point here. So, um, but I said to Christy, I, I control it, but I know how I am when I teach, and I'll probably be there late. So anyway... <laughs> Let's just keep going because we're only on page six. All right. <clears throat> All true comfort comes from God. Anything else is shifting sand. In other words, if there is a comfort that is somewhat godless, and by that I mean the way that people anesthetize the, themselves, they, they drink, they, they drugs, they do other things, so that they just don't think about it anymore. That's not true comfort, and it will not produce any lasting satisfaction. It's just shifting sand. So true comfort comes from God because he never changes. And so if you've derived from your theology, from passages of scripture, some words that have strengthened you and filled you with hope, they'll be there again tomorrow. It never changes. And that's so wonderful. God himself is all comfort. The comfort of knowing him better and feeling him to be close. 
Isaiah 43, 2. Someone read that for us. I love that passage. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you away. Isn't that wonderful? I would just commit that to memory. Because you're going to pass through the waters and through the fire. Isn't it funny how those two substances, if you could call it that, are used in the Bible either as a display of God's, God's wrath, killing people, or a display of God's purification, purifying his people. Both fire and water are used for both. It's just interesting that way. For us, it doesn't slaughter us. It doesn't kill us. It purifies us. When you pass through, I will be with you. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, there was a fourth one, one like the son of the gods, walking with them in the midst of that fiery furnace. All right, so the need for comfort is suffering, the sufferings of Paul. Verse 8 and 9, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. It's hard to even imagine what that must have been like. I've said before, and I continue to think it true, I've not studied any figure from church history, 20th century church history, who even comes close to the Apostle Paul in suffering. No one. Almost anything you could say, well, this guy was a martyr. Paul was a martyr. Well, this guy was in prison. Paul was in prison. This guy was beaten. Paul. This guy suffered this, that, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Paul's credentials outstrip anybody I've ever read. So he went through extreme sorrows and extreme afflictions, he says, in this case, in the province of Asia. And he expected to go through many more, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. God's going to just keep putting us on display. This is going to go on until the end of my life. Paul's credentials of suffering, unmatched in church history. Uh, you can read about it here, 2 Corinthians 11. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. That's Paul. Now, Paul has an amazing uh, perspective on suffering. Verse 18 of Romans 8, he says, I consider their present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. Now, here's what I think. Paul is able to say that at a deeper level than any of us. I consider that my present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. On what basis does he say that? God has given him such foretastes of heavenly glory and joy through the Holy Spirit that we can hardly imagine. Foretastes of it. It's really remarkable. And so he said, look, I'm telling you, it doesn't even compare. It's not even close. And this is a man whose credentials are amazing. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I underscored something there, light and momentary, right? But look at what happens immediately after that underscored part. Are achieving for us and eternal glory. What does that mean? That these light momentary trials are achieving an eternal glory. 
They are working in eternal glory. The trials are. What does that teach you about the trials, the afflictions? Craig, go ahead. Right? Rewarded in heaven. But also they have a very strong role in our sanctification, don't they? Isn't that James? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's sanctification language. So our trials, light and momentary as they are, are still needed. They're efficient in working this eternal glory. The universal suffering of God's people in this present age. No one gets through this world unscathed. You can't walk through a briar patch and not get your flesh ripped. You're going to get nicked and cut. You're going to get hurt. Some more than others, we know it's true. But no one gets through without getting hurt. Everyone does. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we should expect it and be ready for it. Dear friends, do not be surprised, said Peter, at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> Christians are like that. What's going on? I don't get it. Why, do, why don't non-Christians in America love us? I don't, I don't get it. It's like, they don't. Jesus said, if they love me, they'll love you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. So we shouldn't be, act like it's a surprise. I didn't know this was going to come. So there are types of Christian suffering. I hinted at this. First of all, there are ills common to all people. Just understand that. Being sons and daughters of Adam, and if we're not in the final generation, we will die. And the process of dying will hurt us. It will be painful. It will be hard. It will hurt. So like David said to Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. <laughs> in other words, I've been old. I'm old now, Solomon, and I know how things go. And it's about to happen to me. <laughs> so I, it's the way of all the earth. What it means is the sons and daughters of Adam, they die. We're under a death sentence. It's appointed to us to die once after that face death. So that means Disease, pain, accidents, financial troubles, national, natural disasters, disappointments, losses of possessions, situation that's pleasant, anything. Wars and rumors of wars, separations, change, and other things that we could list here. Those are ills common to all people. Christians go through them too. But then there are trials unique to Christians, and specifically here we mean persecution for the word, or persecution because of righteousness or for righteousness' sake. And so we see all that. And I'm going to preach about that in a few minutes. Uh, I'm preaching a mission sermon and talking about the sacrifices made by our brothers and sisters to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ. So again, we need to hear that carefully and, and accurately. There's nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ for our atonement. It's finished. But there's something lacking in the afflictions of Christ to take the atonement to those that have not heard the gospel yet. There is a suffering involved in that. It's been going on for 20 centuries. That's what Paul means. And he says, I'm doing some of that. Other brothers and sisters are doing some of that. There's some of that affliction, but it's all part of the body of Christ, the sufferings. Okay? God is especially zealous to come alongside his children who are suffering persecution for the sake of the kingdom of God. Paul talks about his trial before Nero. Amazing. End of his life. He had said in the previous chapter, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Time for me to die. So he knows he's going to die. There's no doubt about it. But look what he says in chapter 4. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Who do you think Paul has in mind that heard the gospel from him? 
All the Gentiles, well, especially one Gentile in particular, the emperor. And Ananias, when he went to baptize Paul, was told that he will be a witness before my people and the Gentiles and before their kings. So this is the finish line of Paul's ministry. As the apostle to the Gentiles, doesn't it make sense that he would share the gospel with the most powerful Gentile on earth? Apparently not well received. <laughs> but he did preach the gospel and he said, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's not expecting to be delivered from prison like Peter was. He's expected to be delivered from temptation to cowardice. And he was. He was bold. So that's Paul's suffering. All right. So what is the purpose of suffering? Maturity and ministry. Those two words. Think about those two words. Maturity and ministry. So what do those two words mean to you? Purpose of suffering, maturity, and ministry. Let's take the first. Maturity. What does that mean to you? Yeah, Christ-likeness. That's James 1, as I already quoted it, so that we'll be mature and complete, not like anything. We need to suffer to become mature. No suffering, no maturity. Okay? What do I mean by ministry? Purpose of our suffering is ministry. Well, we read about it in 2 Corinthians 1. What do I mean by your suffering is for ministry? Comfort others. Think about others. Say, I'm, I'm going through this right now so I can see God's faithfulness and then talk to other people and be used by God to comfort others that go through that. All right, now, part of the maturity, if I can tell you this, this is a very powerful insight I had about 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, a long time ago. He said <clears throat> about his trial in the province of Asia, this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. That is a powerful insight, isn't it? What does it mean that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God. Paul said, I was brought into this trial by God to teach me a lesson. What, what is the lesson he says that he learned? What does self-reliance mean to you? What does that, what does that mean? Self-reliance. I got this. Been through this before. I can do this. Yeah, who are you forgetting when you're self-reliant? Well, God, Christ. And Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're like, no, actually, I can do a lot of things, Jesus. I'm, I'm good at some things. I'm good. No, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul said, I still needed to learn that. There's still a stubborn self-reliance in me. And the only way I'm going to be weaned off of self-reliance is to go through hardships that are far greater than I can endure. So we need to feel, I, I have to feel I'm still like that. If Paul's that way, how much more am I needing to learn that lesson, to be weaned off of self-reliance? And I like what he says, so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That is the finish line of our salvation, resurrection from the dead, right? And I've said this to you guys before, but I'll say it again. All right. What are your plans for raising yourself from the grave? I mean, that's going to be an important moment for you. What are you planning on doing about that? There's your corpse. It's in the grave. What are you going to do? And it's, we laugh because it's ridiculous. You have no power. You can't do anything. Jesus, John chapter 5, is going to speak to you and raise you up like he did to Lazarus. So 
that you know that you can't do that thing, you ought to just get into and swim in that now. Rely on the God who's going to raise you from the dead. Rely on him for everything. That's what, that's what he's saying. That's, that's the, the maturity that comes. And then also ministry. Let's jump ahead to spiritual ministry. He says, as we read it, the comforts that flow into our lives are comforts so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So you may be going through a medical trial, financial trial, relational trial, trouble with in your family, trouble with your grown kids. Maybe they're not walking with the Lord. Uh, there might be all manner of afflictions. What 2 Corinthians 1 teaches you to do is say, what could God, what ministry could God be preparing me to do in the future? And the best way you can get ready for that is to be as spiritual as you can, to be as immersed in the grace of God as you can. Go through it well. Don't charge God with wrongdoing. Don't murmur against Him. Submit to what He's doing. Trust Him. Speak words of praise. Hurt. Suffer. You will. But just get through it. And then in that way, you're maximally prepared to minister to brothers and sisters as you go through that suffering. And what is the lesson? What is it you learn? This is the point of my whole BFL lesson. God is enough. God is enough. God is what you get. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and I am your very great reward. So when you get to heaven, it's not streets of gold and pearly gates and all that. It's God. You get God. And I actually believe the rewards are a proportional ability to drink in God in heaven. The more that you suffer well and serve well and sacrifice well and all that, the greater your capacity for heavenly joy. And in other words, the greater your capacity for God. You'll be able to drink in God more. That's amazing. So for you then, that's the center, center of this lesson here. God is enough. And that you go through the suffering and say, Lord, would you please give me a greater sense of your presence? Would you walk through this trial with me like you did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Would you give me a sense of who you are more than I've ever had before? Would you give me a sense of your mercy, your patience, your love for me? And in that way, you go through the trial the best you can. I've given you um, an adoration sheet that I did a number of years ago. I love this. Uh, it's at, uh, the last sheet in your handout. And this, these are just the attributes of God, and I would just commend it to you for worship. All right, It's just um, attribute listed and then some scriptural support.